Are you hearing more about social work in primary care with the rollout of the PCNs across British Columbia? Are you looking to learn more about what social workers in primary care do in clinics and how they work? Yeah, me too. Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah, a medical anthropologist and team member in the Innovation Support Unit in the Department of Family Practice at the University of British Columbia. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor and also a team member in the Innovation Support Unit. In this episode, we're going to talk about social workers and mental health counselors in primary care teams. Now, obviously not all primary care teams have social workers or counselors right now, but this is important to think about. We're going to do a bit of a deep dive here as there's a lot of need for more mental health support. And we know that a lot of communities are seeing the addition of new social workers funded through the primary care networks. I think one thing that I've realized in our exploration of what social workers can add in primary care is that there's a lot a social worker can do in a team and can add to a network of teams. Sarah, we explored the social worker a little bit in an earlier Team Up webinar, and that focused on how the Sunshine Coast was integrating social workers with the support of their PSP coaches. For those of you who are interested, we'll definitely post a link in the show notes to the webinar. Today, we're going to focus a little more on the general scope as we hear from a few social workers and other team members that they work closely with. And we'll be focusing on social work and also touching on some of the counseling and mental health supports as well. Let's start by doing a little bit of a general scope of what social workers do, Sarah. So first off, social workers can engage in assessments to screen for risk factors, identify strengths, and address mental health concerns. They can also diagnose mental health disorders. Social workers play a key role in treatment and supporting management, and they collaborate closely with patients and families to identify different strategies to optimize how they function. Social workers can help with focused counseling and crisis management. They're very skilled at facilitating support groups and creating safety plans for patients. They can also take on education and advocacy roles and can consult and educate patients and families about different programs, forms, applications, financial planning, advanced care planning. They really support patients with a lot of the reports that often need to be made to access other resources. And this kind of navigation support with all the paperwork can get primary care providers really excited when they think about a social worker. So there's so many forms and I know as a family doc, that's what I think about. I need help and social workers can help with forms, but it's so much more than that. And I, I think we want to highlight this episode that social workers' role is not just helping with forms. There's so much more. Right. And I think it's that key role in kind of supporting referrals and collaboration across a patient's whole circle of care that is really the space where social workers shine. We have access to the PCN Toolkit Social Work Scope of Practice. We'll link that as well because it's a nice handy reference. And Sarah, I know that you decided to add the role of mental health counselor into this episode as there's some scope overlap, but these two roles are different. So let's set up the difference a little bit. Right. And when we started this episode as a non-clinician, I had lots of scope questions, so I had to go and look for this. It's worth noting here that there's a whole range of professionals who provide different kinds of counseling and support. The primary difference, I think, between a social worker and mental health counselors is the scope of what they do in their educational background. Both roles have expertise that overlap when it comes to supporting mental health and well-being, and both can provide crisis support. There's a difference in scope with social workers and the different kinds of mental health counselors based on the training that people have had, their positionality, Social workers and their registered professions, so their scope is more well-defined. 
from our experience in communities, Morgan, the support that counselors and social work roles are able to provide is in really high demand. Mental health, looking at social determinants of health, and social work and counseling roles are often among the first considered when clinical teams are thinking about, okay, we have a primary care network, now we have some opportunity to maybe add some roles to a team. That's really what we've seen on the ground. We have such a broad scope of work that we do that is not always easily defined in a healthcare context. I see people who are experiencing either acute or chronic social or systemic structural barrier type problems that could be poverty, trauma, conflict in families and in relationships. Casey's a social worker who's been integrated into a PCM. I actually got to meet Casey in some of the primary care graduate work. Now, in his role, he supports multiple clinics across the region that he works in. For instance, I might see somebody with a new diagnosis of cancer who has to take time off work, has to find a way to get to the lower mainland to attend oncology appointments, might want to seek some counseling for themselves and for their family. And I can help them at all of those stages. But the idea is that I would get involved at an early stage in whatever issue is affecting people to actually help um, hopefully prevent people from getting to more complicated stages in their lives. Obviously, I can't disrupt the progress of an illness, but sometimes psychosocial interventions can prevent people from really spiraling out of control and possibly losing housing or a job or a marriage. Danielle Parent is another social worker we connected with, and she works in an urgent and primary care center where she sees patients with more urgent care needs. So her focus is a little different. I describe it a little bit as a generalist social work role. And what I mean by that is we know a lot or a little about a lot of things. So we help support people coming into the clinic and helping individuals navigate the system, whether it be like health resources, community resources and government resources, depending on the client's need. We do also provide a lot of mental health and substance use support for individuals. And another role of ours is crisis intervention. Often we're that first point of contact. So Danielle highlights the navigation support that's so key. And this is particularly important when people aren't well connected to primary care and they're in crisis. So connecting patients to the various resources and providing that extra support can be a huge benefit and go a long way in addressing issues. And if that isn't addressed, it can result in people falling through the cracks. What's unique about my role, unlike any other PCM that I am familiar with, is that I will see people from birth to death. So I see children. I see people who are under 18. And that's not typical of health authority employees in PCNs, but our division made the case that this was important because especially in a small community like this, there's really not a lot of support for youth. And that's been my favorite part is working with families, working with children who are going through a whole range of struggles in their lives. And certainly I'm not happy that they're going through those struggles, but I'm happy that I'm able to jump in because there really isn't anybody else who can do it. And you know, Morgan, this longitudinal perspective and the ability to care for the full range of patients that Casey frames here is interesting. 
And I know that many roles in primary care teams work in this way. Until these recent conversations with social workers, I think my understanding of the social work role had really been kind of limited to the crisis and intervention side of things. Both Casey, who we just heard from again, and Kayla McGinn, a social worker with a community health center, spoke to the flexible and more longitudinal support that they're able to provide to patients. I really see my support and approach to folks is very humanized, very strengths-based, and building their capacity so that they can have confidence to take this whatever their goal is, and run with it for the rest of their journey. And so rather than just a band-aid, rather than just one reach in for crisis support, it's more about how can I carry you and walk with you so that you can do this on your own and be independent and feel strong. So this is a place where the counseling role can be different. Of course, there's also longitudinal relationships in counseling, but often in primary care, counseling can be shorter and focused around particular challenges And I think this is often the case in primary care networks when counselors are working across multiple clinics. Sarah, for us, where we've had the luxury of having counselors as part of our team for years, very much the counselors have longitudinal relationships with patients, and they may see them intensely for a short period of time and then not for a while, and then again a year or two later intensely for a while. And that can be really powerful to have that continuity and trust. Tess Bantock is a counselor who works in a CHC team along with a social worker. You did bring up nature walking as well, and that's something I love. I think people are always surprised by that. Like, oh, we can go for a walk. You'll meet me by the river. I can bring my dog. That really surprises people. I've also, you know, for those who have less mobility, just go sit in a park bench. Let's hang out. Let's have some tea. Have that connection as well, bringing that to anyone who might need it. So Tess and Kayla work together in a CHC, and they often work together to decide how to best meet the needs of particular patients and who's going to be the best fit in different circumstances. And when you do have roles in a team with these overlapping aspects of scope, these conversations, working on how you're going to work together, and I know we keep saying this, but they're so important. Yeah, in BC right now, I think having both counselors and social workers on the same team is pretty rare, except in community health centers. We've had the luxury at Kool-Aid to have social workers only relatively recently, along with the counselors that we have. But we're seeing more of this now at the primary care network level. And I think the addition of these types of roles is super important to patients in primary care networks, but also that clarity is needed so that patients get to the right team members to support them. Right. And that getting to the right team members, I think the value of these roles in a team, when we think about the ideal state of wraparound care and primary care, the first thing I think I really heard in our conversations here about social work and the counseling roles was really the flexibility of folks in these roles. This emphasis on being in-house specialists that can complement the longitudinal care provided by a physician. Now we have two individuals who specialize, you know, working in youth and working with children, getting that support for those kids, which is all in-house, which on the larger scale, when you look at the community health center and how many family doctors we have and the longitudinal care that comes with being a family physician, we get to fit in there quite nicely. People aren't just one person. They are their family and their support network and their whole life. And so it's cool to be able to serve that as well. So I like that Tess highlights that supporting of families and creating those support systems for communities. And this is something that I think we heard Casey also speak to earlier. Many counselors and social workers are also able to do outreach and to see patients where they're at. Both Kayla and Casey talked about the importance of being able to connect with patients in the community. 
I have a gentleman who was admitted to the hospital for diabetic concerns. And I said to him, hey, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm in the hospital. And I said, well, I'd love to come see you then. What floor are you on and what room? I'll be there. I brought him a coffee. We had a visit at his bedside. And he's like, you do this? And I said, well, we're human. You might need some TLC and some check-in right now. You're in the hospital and I'm here just to see how you are. I will see people at home when they don't have the ability to come to the clinic, either because of mobility limitations or there's no bus that goes to where they're living because we're in a fairly rural, remote area. Or if there is a matter of safety in the home that the physician wants me to take a look at. Something I might do that people aren't aware of is I will do a home safety assessment quite frequently. So perhaps it's a, an older adult living alone who hasn't come to their last three appointments, hasn't picked up their medication, and there are some questions about whether they are at risk living alone. So I will go and visit them and spend some time with them. And sometimes that's hour-long visits over the course of many months to build up some trust with them, to really understand where they're coming from. And then I can make a recommendation to the physician, or I can start to gradually bring that person back into the clinical setting where they see their physician. So set up some way of getting them to their appointment. So it's this reattachment kind of work that I often do. And without team members who are able to do the follow-up really actively to connect with people and connect them to other services, the patients who are in the most need can really easily get lost in the system. Earlier this year, I was contacted by a landlord who was concerned about their tenant who hadn't been paying rent on time and was possibly living in unsafe conditions. The landlord got my phone number from the clinic. They called to speak with the doctor. MOA said, well, the doctor's not available, but our social worker is here, so I'll put you through to the social worker. So after that conversation, I was able to reach the doctor who said, I absolutely support you doing a home visit. It would be a good idea to see how they're doing. So then I called the patient, wasn't able to reach them, and called a home care nurse who did know the patient and had seen them recently. And we did a joint visit together. And it turned out that, yes, this person had some cognitive changes and was less on top of their finances. I had also had some falls that were unreported. And so with the help of this home care nurse and the physician, and then bringing in a community physiotherapist, we were able to put in a care plan to support the patient to remain at home safely. I love this story. It highlights such a great example of the breadth and scope and how social workers will adapt to the situation and engage even the landlord. It's not something that we do as primary care docs all that often. And this was also across multiple systems, right? So primary care, but also touching on housing and tenancy, finances. Tess and Kayla, the counselor and social worker duo we heard from earlier, had a great way of framing the way they see their own roles in the team. It's very cool to be able to work in a team. Kayla and I have kind of had these labels of bridge and anchor. How do we get people to where they need to go? And then how can we ground them there? How can we support them in creating this for themselves? The physician is supporting the individual on their medical needs and completing the medical paperwork that we can't support. And I am the social worker that works with the individual to get them financial security. 
make sure their rent is paid. And so that's my realm, working within my scope. And then Tess is making sure that they're anchored and grounded and really working on that therapy so that they can do life. I can see all three of those scopes working so tight-knit because of that team-based care. And we're all activating our skills and our scope to best serve this one individual that has complex needs, but we all need each other. So the bridge and the anchor. I love that. And there's another side of this that really emerged as a theme in the conversation with several different social workers. And that is the role they held in connecting patients to the other resources that we talked about before, but connecting into the community to fill in what would otherwise be gaps in their care. I'll share a story, which is really a beautiful story, is I have this lovely gentleman I support with one of our family physicians. He needed a new set of dentures. And we all know it's not just teeth, it's your diet, it's your confidence. Unfortunately, those can be up to $4,000 for a gentleman on retirement income. I reached out to local nonprofits and organizations, and we let him know this fella's story and the need. They issued a check for him to purchase a new set of dentures. And that was asking for help when I didn't have a resource for this gentleman. And not only did they write the check, but they invited us to one of their meetings and they honored us. They had a dinner for us and we just celebrated that beautiful support. And we really actually have those lifelong connections now. So it's not always about the financial aspect. I really wanted to highlight community support because we don't have all the resources. We don't have all the know. We ask for help and we team up. And I think we rely on our community just as much as our community relies on our professions. And that was a great example Kayla gave us of that connector role. I think there's also the very real kind of administrative burden that social workers are able to alleviate for patients. In her role in the urgent primary care center, Danielle sees this added value daily. When it comes to social work or different follow-ups, you know, we are able to support someone in the short term while maybe linking them up to other community resources if they are needing longer term support. So for some individuals, when it comes to applications, it's not uncommon that it will take one, two or three appointments. And so it can get a bit time consuming for sure. But with Social Work 2, we are actually able to book appointments, which I find is really helpful, especially for individuals who might not have a phone or have limited access to transportation. I think these navigator roles, there's lots of examples and the whole different ways of supporting, bridging and anchoring people into community, I think is so important. And the more we realize this value, the more valuable having social workers in our team is going to be. We connected with Amy Huff, who's a PCN transformation lead, who has a background in social work. She gave us some other interesting perspectives as well. And I think that social work in healthcare in general has come a long way and our value and sort of status and acceptability in healthcare has come a long way. I remember starting out in practice almost 20 years ago, fighting for one of five social work positions in the whole Okanagan area. And now there's probably hundreds. So I think physicians and nurses and other allied health professionals realize the value of that social work skill set, connecting with social and community resources, grief, loss, some of that clinical counseling work, connecting to other systems, social determinants of health, which we know are really drivers of health and wellness in general and can improve health outcomes. For this season, we've been connecting to folks who hold a whole host of roles in primary care teams. And one of the questions we asked everyone was to reflect on their experiences working with other roles in the team and what they learned from the social worker and counselors that they worked with. 
For me, they were able to ensure that the patient was the expert of their own life in a way that was incredibly empowering to witness, as opposed to just like jumping into the algorithm of the medical history and the red flags. I know that patient was able to develop a relationship with the social worker where they would feel comfortable taking issues forward in the future. And so I think just really demonstrating the skills needed to make the relationship feel very safe and patient-centered was something that I learned a lot in those days that we spent together. That was Eliza Henshaw, a nurse practitioner. And I think she and so many of the others we connected with really emphasized the different kinds of connections and roles that social workers and counselors are able to support. Shania was one of the MOAs we heard from recently in the third episode of this season. In her clinic, they work with a counselor who isn't co-located, but is still effectively able to connect with patients to really provide them added support when they need it most. The doctors are able to send a mental health referral to her. She'll then connect with those patients and get them in. Depending on the severity, it could be like one to two weeks and they just do a phone appointment so they don't have to come in. Sometimes when you have mental health, you don't want to come in and see somebody. You know what I mean? And to have your doctors be able to have their counseling that's specific for the clinic, it builds like a better rapport. And then she'll kind of triage if she can continue care or if they need to be referred somewhere else. And then that's communicated back to the physicians. So there's a constant connection. And Sarah, beyond the connector pieces, we also heard lots of stories that emphasize the support that social workers can do to support social determinants of health, thinking about patients more holistically, perhaps. Terry Aldridge is an Indigenous family physician who does a lot of work at the system level, as well as supporting her own practice. One of the things that we worked on was like, well, it'd be really great to have like a social worker kind of dedicated to providing support for primary care as well for a host of different reasons, including, you know, addressing things like poverty and helping to address like food insecurity and helping to do things like fill out disability forms and all of that. And so getting to know what social work services was already in place in Carousel County kind of helped us to develop a system where we could enhance the services from the primary care perspective. I've had a number of clients experiencing some pretty significant mental health crises and being able to collaborate with our social workers and our mental health counselors. I don't know how I ever worked in a facility without them before. When you don't have them, when we're short staffed and they're, you know, they're not on that day, you miss their presence so significantly because they really contribute to some of those really challenging situations, especially when there are socioeconomic challenges, mental health challenges, addictions challenges. And just to have that member of your team there that can help the patient navigate through the system, it's just such a wonderful thing to have. Now that second voice, Sydney Richardson-Carr, is a nurse practitioner who works at two different UPCCs. That added capacity for more complex patients is essential. It's not just useful, it's essential. And there's another huge benefit here when we think about the capacity of a team that Wendy, a PSP coach, sees in her work when she's been supporting team-based care. I think that they save time. They intervene and save a lot of time. When they're within primary care, they can really sit down and in partnership with the family physician, think through solutions and build capacity together that helps to serve those patients. So we've talked a lot about the scope of social workers and mental health counselors in primary care. And we've heard from folks in those roles in different kinds of settings, from in clinic to within networks. 
That's right. And I think we heard some great examples of these roles. Connectors, navigators, relationship holders, community anchors, really enhancing the ability of primary care teams to meet the broader psychosocial needs of the more complex and often marginalized patients, particularly in times of crisis. So bringing this back to our action focus, Morgan, if a social worker is joining your team, what can you do? So the first thing is to recognize that including a social worker or counselor is really building the team capacity. And it does take some effort up front. You need to figure out how you're going to communicate and how you're going to connect and how you're going to work together. I don't have the time to have hallway conversations with physicians. Or to be clear, they don't have the time to have the hallway conversations with me because their days are jam-packed. But we do a lot of our communicating through the EMR. There's a messenger system. You can send a note that's linked to a patient's chart And that's how we often communicate about patients. What makes it difficult is when that's not a method of communication that the physician prefers, or when they haven't had a lot of experience working with allied health. So sometimes the work I have to do at work is proving myself to the physicians, showing that not only am I there to support their patients, but that I'm someone they can rely on. And that usually works, but it does take some time. The second thing is really thinking about space and providing, if possible, a therapeutic space as opposed to exam rooms. Tess and Kayla had the opportunity to come into a new community health center, and they kind of had this unique chance to help design their space. I don't think this is something that all social worker counselors' roles would have, but they had some really interesting reflections about space in our conversation. They've really created such a cool space. When they got this space for us, it was very, you know, what, what do you need? What works for you as a professional and what, what does that look like? What we were requesting and what I thought our folks really would deserve is a therapeutic space. I think there's some maybe ties and associations with medical clinics and being kind of a scary place for some people at times. As silly as it sounds, you know, the sense, the smells, the pillows, the touch, the sensory, but also for confidentiality, we have our windows frosted so that when an individual is in this space, they feel cocooned and safe. So not all providers can have the opportunity to intentionally build their space. But I think there's a lot of small changes that you can think about. Even if it's a room that doesn't have an exam table, that's a huge start. And then the lighting, adding some artwork, creating something that is distinct and separate that really helps ground the work that social workers and counselors will do. I think that's really important. The other part is not just about the exam room or the clinical space where you're seeing patients, but some shared space to work together as a team. And I think it's those opportunities to share space in clinics that really does so much to help building relationships across a team. So the last call to action we want to touch on today is something that we say a lot, which is, you know, creating opportunities for people to get to know each other. Casey gave an example of what a great day would look like from his perspective that really demonstrates this value, I think, of working together and creating these opportunities. A great day, I mean, is coming to work in the morning and maybe one of the MOAs has decorated the office and there's a little party going on. So everyone is kind of feeling at ease and chit-chatting. And then I'm able to speak with a doctor about someone that I have a concern about. I might say, hey, I'm going to go see that patient today. Do you have time later if I call you? And the doctor says, you know what, between 1.30 and 2, I have some time. So I go and see the patient at home. I call the doctor. They answer me. I say, actually, you know, this, I'm worried about this patient. I'm going to get them in my car. I'm going to bring them to the clinic. 
And so I show up, I see the patient with the doctor, and the three of us talk about a care plan together, and then I can bring the person back home. And I think it's great for the patient because they don't have to tell their story over and over. It's great for me because I get the support of the physician for some issues that are outside of my scope. And it's great for the doctor because someone's bringing their patient right to them and they know that if they're suggesting some sort of treatment, that there is a person like me to support the patient with following that treatment. So really great takeaways from the conversation today that I think are generalizable across so many primary care teams. First, figure out how you're going to communicate and get to know the social worker or mental health counselor that's on your team, particularly if they're only part-time. Next, think about space and small changes that can create kind of those therapeutic spaces where possible and those shared spaces to support team development. And then create opportunities for team members, providers to work together to support a patient. And these can be informal and they can be case conferences and they can be group appointments. Great. And thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes where we're going to link to some of the resources we mentioned in this episode. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas or stories you'd like to share, or things you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, please reach out at isu at familymed.ubc.ca. Join us next week as we dive into another role in primary care. Mm-hmm.